indignantly, and a hawk pounced from the sky to harvest them, its wings as broad as a man's spread arms. Then the tribesmen stopped. A few moaned aloud in fear. Deera's eyes went wide in wonder. For a long moment, the thing in the broad meadow ahead was so strange that her eyes slid away from its shape, unable to comprehend. Then there was a feeling like a click behind her brow, and she saw. It was twice the height of a tall man, and stood on three long, spidery legs amid a circle of burnt grass. The fire beneath was still working its way outward, slow and sullen in the wet growth of spring. The body above was a cone in shape, the bottom blackened, and with a smaller cone protruding from it. Even at two hundred yards she could feel the heat. Holes like little caves or the windows of a hut opened in the upper body, and movement there brought a gasp from her people. The scent of burning was rank, and she coughed a little at the smoke. Slowly, mastering the fear that made her skin glisten with fresh sweat, was she not the heir to the cave master, initiate of the mystery? She approached and prodded the skin of the thing with the tip of her spear. There was a hollow clunk. It is metal, she said, but not bronze or copper or tin or gold or silver. Suddenly her mate pushed her between the shoulder blades. She looked around in surprise. Go, Jaron said with fierce hope in his eyes. The Weragu will fear this thing of magic. We will fight them here. If we kill many, they will not pursue beyond it. Go, run for the mountains. Agony spiked through her despair as he grounded the butt of his spear and took his blowgun from the sling across his back, reaching for a dart from his belt. I cannot leave you. You are our people's hope, and there is no time for talk. Go, go now. Weeping, Dira obeyed. Baikonur Cosmodrome, Kazakhstan, USSR, June 14, 1962. Boja the technician whispered. The grainy image flickered on the video monitors. It was in color, for no expense had been spared. The smoke of landing had cleared, and the scientists behind him exclaimed sharply as the camera deployed and panned across a meadow scarred by fire. The audio pickups were functioning as well. There was a crackling of burning grass, the hiss of the wind, unintelligible cheeps and croaks. That is grass one of the biologists said, slurping at a glass of hot, sweet tea from the samovar on the corner. The scent of it was strong in the room, along with the scorched insulation and metal smell of tube-driven electronics. And I would swear some sort of field poppy. Parallel development under environmental influence, another older academician said, as the recording reels whirred. Perhaps Comrade Lysenko was right after all. Both fell silent as something flicked by the video pickup. The technician kept his hands off the controls. The long feedback cycle to the probe's robot mothercraft orbiting around Venus and from there to the surface and back made it impossible to track moving objects. A beaked head filled the pickup, a beak with fangs, blurred by the close-up. A tongue flicked within as the whatever it was gnawed at the lens and then fluttered off. 
It had teeth and feathered wings with claws on the forward edge. Then sky showed again, white with only a tint of blue and full of flying creatures too distant to identify. The technician looked at some trees for reference, and his eyes widened again as he realized how large some of the flyers must be. Are the Yankee getting any of this? A KGB bigwig asked unhappily. I am afraid so, Comrade General, the chief academician said. There's no way to narrowcast a beam over interplanetary distances, just as we will intercept their Martian probes broadcasts when it lands next month. That is why it was decided to rebroadcast internally as well. The security officer opened his mouth to respond, then closed it again. This time he whispered a curse. Even the most ideological vigilant could be forgiven a what the devil at what they